This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we have drones in the air and under the water. But first up, here's the news. See like a fish. An American citizen science group on the science crowdfunding site experiment.com has looked at how some types of freshwater fish are able to see more colours than humans by using vitamin A2 to make a receptor that's sensitive to near-infrared light. Unlike the fish, humans don't absorb much vitamin A2 from our diet. Vitamin A2 has nothing to do with the A2 specialty milk sold in Australia. Near-infrared colours are just a little lower on the rainbow than red, which is the lowest frequency colour humans can easily see. The protein complex that lets fish see the extra colours below red is called porphyropsin. No, they aren't aiming for predator-style infrared heat vision to see in the dark, just a few extra colours below red. In human vision, vitamin A1 or retinol binds to opsin to make photopsin, which our cone cells use to give us our daytime colour vision, and rhodopsin, which our rods use to give us motion sensitivity and night vision. In freshwater fish, porphyropsin uses vitamin A2, which has the chemical name 3,4-dihydroretinol. Near-infrared colours have a wavelength between 800 to 2500 nanometers. Humans can absorb vitamin A2, but our bodies have a much higher preference for vitamin A1 when absorbing nutrients from food. The team's plan was to eat large amounts of vitamin A2 supplements while on a vitamin A1 restriction diet, so that enough A2 got through for their eyes to make porphyropsin like a fish. Humans can already see a little way into the near-infrared colours if the light is very bright. The science for the masses team hoped that by supplementing with A2, their eyes will be able to see these near-infrared colours at much lower levels of light. Grinding is the name for hacking or modifying your own body. It's open source, grinder, crowdfunded citizen science. The team asked for $4,000 on the crowdfunding site, which they were to spend on a special diet high in vitamin A2 and an electro-retinograph to measure the changes in the eyes of both test and control subjects. They're blogging as they go, with crowdfunding backers seeing the updates first. The test and control subjects first went on a vitamin A restricted diet that was also intended to reduce body fat, before the vitamin A2 arrived, so that the A2 could take the place of the vitamin A1 when the test subjects started supplementing. 
The test and control subjects first went on a vitamin A restricted diet that was also intended to reduce body fat. This was so that when they did start taking vitamin A2, that this A2 could take the place in their body of vitamin A1. Tightly restricting vitamin A intake while otherwise eating a nutritionally complete diet is too much to ask of ordinary food. They were able to precisely control their nutrient intake by replacing their food with the infamous Soylent from Kickstarter. Soylent is a smoothie powder that's designed to meet all of your food needs, as long as you don't need flavour and texture. Soylent offer a service to precisely tailor the nutrients, present or absent, so it was a very good fit for the project. And no, it's not made of people. To avoid all the health problems outside of vision from missing vitamin A in your diet, they added retinoic acid to the Soylent mix. Vitamin A1 and vitamin A2 degrade to retinoic acid before the body starts using vitamin A outside of vision. Both the controls and the test subjects noticed a loss of night vision while they were on the vitamin A restricted diet phase. The aim is to replace the rhodopsin of human night vision with a porphyropsin that fish use to see extra colours of red in dim light. Phase 2 was to switch the controls to a complete Soylent diet and the test subjects to an A2 supplemented Soylent diet. The project has reported its first results. Their test subjects' colour vision does appear to have changed. When they used the electroretinograph, they made sure the subjects' eyes were dark adapted for 4 minutes to make sure they weren't just measuring after effects of the time the eyes were in the light. Then they flashed light in narrow bands of colour from LEDs while measuring the electrical output from the electroretinograph. Normal red vision stops being easy at 700 nanometers wavelength for most people. The electroretinograph shows that the test subjects can now see light at the wavelength of 850 nanometers more easily than they could before they took the dietary supplements and at 950 nanometers for the first time. They plan to publish a scientific paper when the study is completed. You can find out more at the team website scienceforthemasses.org and the crowdfunding site experiment.com. And look to fundscience.org.au to support Andrew Tuckwell's Australian Biomod team. They need to travel to the US to engage in the Biomod competition and design new types of biosensors using DNA. Help get the Aussie Synthetic Biology team to Harvard. You can download the 2nd of June 2014 show to hear Andrew talk about the Biomod Synthetic Biology Competition from www.diffusionradio.com. And if you can contribute, go to fundscience.org.au. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. This week we have two interviews from the Sydney Mini Maker Fair, with the usual warning about background noise from happy fairgoers. And remember, that's fair spelt with an E, which means make in French. First, meet Ian Lyons. Ian started Makerdrone.com to create a community for people who want to get into quadcopters but don't necessarily know where to start and don't want to wade through thousands of forum posts to try and figure it out. I began by asking him where should people start who would like to fly quadcopters. 
Well, I, I usually say that there's one of two ways. You get yourself a little $50 micro quad. You can order them from China. That's the cheapest way to do it. And they're great because they're very light. You can't hurt yourself. You can't hurt anyone else. And you, you don't put too many divots into your walls, which, which partners don't tend to like very much. They, they have propeller guards, and they're actually incredibly useful to learn to fly. Um, even the, the professionals use them to hone their skills. Do they have cameras on them, or is that more expensive? A little bit more expensive. So there's a Hubson X4 model, and they've got a range that starts with just the quadcopter, and then you can have a quadcopter with a standard definition camera, high definition camera, and then even what's known as an FPV. So the camera sends a live video signal from the quadcopter to the LCD screen in your controller. You reckon that people start with a a little cheap one to, to play with, and then where do they go from there? It's a little bit more than just playing with. It's you're actually learning how to fly the craft. The next step I'd recommend is getting a simulator. So you, you, it's called AeroSim RC. is the best one I found for quadcopters because it has lots of different models. And while it doesn't look the best in terms of environments, it, it has very accurate flight characteristics for the various models. So if you learn using a Phantom or using a, a F450, you're going to be able to fly it. When, when you get a real one. That also allows you to buy the controller that you're going to use, so the, the remote control transmitter. So you're learning with exactly what you're going to be using to fly the physical craft, and that, that's such a nice path. And the, the simulator is about $100. You get a little dongle. Your controller can be as cheap as about $60, but if you're really going to get serious about it, uh, $170 is, is what you want to buy. It's a, a Tyrannus, a Free Sky Tyrannus it's called. And what you don't want to do is pay $2,500 for the colour screen for Taba, Android-driven thing, because you just don't need it. You just don't. So what sort of uses are you putting your quadrocopter drones to? So my interest is in uh, doing proof of concepts. So aerial filming is something that a lot of people are interested in. For two years I've been sort of hoping and dreaming about uh, filming ourselves sailing. So I sail on Sydney Harbour quite regularly and to be able to program the drone to rotate around the boat at a certain altitude no matter what the boat is doing that's becoming possible you have a transponder on the boat which sends its position to the quadcopter and the flight controller does all of the maths figures out all of the wind and you end up with a very smooth video that you really can't get any other way and i think it's just a it's a wonderful way of seeing you sailing so that, that, that's one use. Uh, uh, another one is 3D mapping of environments. So you can take a sequence of still photos in a very known form, um, sort of flight path, and then you stitch them together in software and you get a 3D map view, similar to what uh, Apple Maps does and some of uh, Google Earth does. The other thing is transporting things might be worthwhile if they're lightweight and high value. I mean, cocaine would be a great thing to transport, but uh, not student books. I think Amazon transportation's a, a way off, but you know, even you know, you, you got to sort of think a little bit differently. Um, something that's lightweight but high value is a two terabyte mobile hard drive that you might have just recorded an hour's worth of filming on on a film set, and you might it might be difficult for you to get it back to the editing studio and where time really is money. You put this onto one of the drones, you get it back to the editing studio in 10 minutes instead of 40 minutes or an hour in traffic. That makes a difference to your workflow in a big way. Yeah, so there's, there's some of the uses, yep. 
your business is what training people advising people or well originally I thought I'd run workshops teaching people how to build it from scratch but really accelerating the process that I had to go through but that kind of stopped dead because I didn't want to leave people with the craft and no training on how to fly them safely and responsibly and, and the thing that's missing at the moment is insurance so you can't run a business if you can't get liability insurance and you know it requires councils to be open to the possibility of people flying and understanding the risk and then it sort of opens up the, the whole training certification licensing issue that the CASA safety air safety authorities grappling with right now and I'd like to approach them with hopefully a solution that involves a you know, the simulator but we program in all of the safety things that are relevant to Australia you know things like the difference between flying in an open field and an urban environment is night and day and the danger is you can go to Ted's camera store and buy a, a DJI Phantom and it makes it seem like it's really easy to fly these things. But what most people don't understand is in an urban environment where you've got lots of buildings and flat surfaces, GPS signals bounce around a lot. And GPS is one of the critical things it uses to make it easier for you to fly. And what happens is if you drop just from six GPS signals to five, your drone no longer knows where it is. And it'll try to get to where it thinks it should be really quickly. And anyone who's in the way, they get a drone in their head. That, can li that literally has happened. They're called flyaways, and there are hundreds and hundreds of documented cases of this in the forums. So they're not as safe and as easy as the manufacturers make them out to be, and I really don't like that they do that. I, th I think they don't need to oversimplify things because th they carry risk, and you know, it's better when people are aware of the risk and can plan for it. And, you know, the, in the community, the longer you've been flying, the less willing you are to fly around people. Not because you're conservative, but because you've seen all the failures now. And you, you understand how unreliable they can be and unpredictable. That'll change. It'll get better, for sure. But at the moment, they carry risk. So what's the legality of flying quadcopters in Australia? There are guidelines. So the, the hard and fast rules are that you're not allowed to use them for commercial gain or for hire at the moment, unless you're licensed by CASA. And there are about 130 Australian companies that are licensed. But they, they have to jump through quite a lot of hoops. And those regulations were written 12 years ago and they're being updated. But yeah, they're, they're pretty good and we've got it better than most countries in the world. But CASA is in the process of, of revamping all of that. The guidelines are don't fly within 30 metres of people who are unsuspecting <laughs> that you're going to be flying around them. Don't fly within 5.5 kilometres of an airport. Um, basically don't fly in cities because you, you're going to crash and you're high risk that you're going to damage property or person and guess what, your insurance company is going to dump you because you, you're not insured for this sort of stuff even though you think you are, you're not. So it's, it's more the understanding the risk that you're taking, the personal risk, you know, you're going to get sued if something goes wrong. You're much better off flying out in the middle of nowhere on, you know, best thing is on private land where you have the permission of the, the landowner and a very low chance of, of running into people. That, that, that's the best. Uh, and when you're learning, don't be around trees and buildings and, uh, and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I don't want to downplay it, but, you know, look, start with the tiny things that, that can't cause much damage because 
as soon as the rules come out and say, right, 500... What, what I'd like to see happen is that 500 grams is the completely unregulated size and weight. So anything under that, no problem. Because it, the risk is small. What will happen then is all the vendors will start innovating around that, those constraints. And we'll see amazing things happen. So you know, software stabilised uh, cameras instead of hardware gimbals, which are weighty, they'll evolve. And within a couple of years, they'll be just as good as the hardware stabilised cameras are. And then there'll be just be a, f- a flourishing of, of innovation and products because it's all legal and it's fine and there's a market for it. So that, that'll happen. It's, the, the space is moving faster than I've ever seen any technology move and it'll continue to do so. So it'll get smaller, lighter, less risk and I think that's how people will get into it. There was something on the net recently, the phone, which is a phone and a drone. So you put your Android phone onto a, a frame that you, as part of a do-it-yourself kit and build your own little drone that you then control with another phone. Is that the sort of thing someone could could start with, but again, off in the country where it's safe? Yeah. Now, one of the things that's unpredictable are the radio signals. So you're operating in the unlicensed ranges, and typically your flight controller is in the 2.4 gigahertz range, which is the same as Wi-Fi which is exactly the same range that the GoPro transmits its, its remote control signals. Um, so you can have interference and it can drop out of the sky. So putting an Android phone onto a, a, a quadcopter might be a little bit more dangerous than you think. However, having said that, every quadcopter very soon will have a 3G connection. So another way of saying it is every drone will be connected to the internet. Before it even spins up the motors, it'll connect to a, probably a CASA-run website that says, I'm here, this location, am I allowed to fly? Or am I in restricted space because, whatever reason, I'm too close to an airport or they've just restricted that airspace. It'll also ask you to log your flight plan. Where, what's the region that you're planning to fly in? And it'll stop. At, it's called ring fencing. And it'll stop in midair and come back to... A safe point so that you can actually give it to, to a, a, a child and they can't do anything really bad because the the technology will, will stop that from happening so your, your drone asks for permission to fly it says this is my flight path that information will be shared with civil airspace um, and what I hope will happen is that your your flight log so everything that's logged every sensor that's logged is then transmitted up to you know, some sort of body that CASA approves of. And in return, you're insured. So that's a quid pro quo. So it's not a big brother thing, but if you log your flights and you fly safely and responsibly, our, our society accepts this long term and an insurance company knows how to insure the, the product and you get access to insurance. But if you don't fly within these sort of constraints or constructs, then you are flying without insurance. You... I mean, uh, I think there should be severe penalties for doing that. You know, just like if you drive a car without a license in your court, there's severe penalties. I think the drones, similarly, there should be. And I think pretty quickly we'll get people understanding that it's actually better to fly within the the rules for themselves. I don't think there are too many needs for people to fly outside of of the, the things that we set up, as long as those aren't too constraining, as long as you can still have fun. But I think the technology will take away the risk. Better sensors, better use of those sensors, 
at the moment pilots are required to pay attention to everything including flying the airplane when you take the flying of the airplane away so computers can do this much more reliably much faster we have a 200 millisecond response time whereas in these drones they're sampling their environment 400 times a second and reacting 400 times a second so at low altitude high wind they're much much safer than any human can ever be so this technology will move back into civil airspace leaving the pilot to deal with the uncertainty the unpredictable things you know they're worried about the, the mission rather than keeping the plane level you know, the weather system that's coming up and that sort of stuff. So I, I think it's pretty exciting and because there's so much development, it'll very quickly start benefiting us when we're flying personally as well, you know, in, in aeroplanes. And where should people look for you online? Uh, so the website is makerdrone.com. Maker is in making stuff. And it's just .com, not .com.au. And where do you run your workshops? Great, yeah. The Maker Drone is based out of Solidifier, which is Sydney's first maker space. And it's, it's located close to the city in Darlinghurst on the corner of Oxford and Crown Street. So it's a place to take all of your cool stuff and you know, get it out of bits of the house that you know, your partner may be uh, not wanting you to have your flying machines. And also to be around people who are doing the same thing and access equipment that you, know, you might be thinking about getting, but someone else has got, you get to play with it and really understand, is this for me or not? So whether it's the flight controllers or the, you know, right, just recently I got a, um, it's called an FPV screen. Previously, you buy an LCD screen, the receiver, the battery, and you've got cables running all over the place, and now it's all in one. Uh, it's just so much easier to carry around, and you know, it's something I'd be highly recommending. So it's that, that sort of just get going much, much faster. I'm going to be trying to post useful blog posts on the site and get people interacting and sort of build a community of people who, who want to do this the right way and, and not open themselves up to the risk that otherwise there would be. Well, Ian, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. That was Ian Lyons talking about remotely piloted aerial vehicles, quadcopters and hexacopters. I want one. You can find Ian online at makerdrone.com. Next up, underwater drones. Dominic from the Open ROV project is building underwater remotely operated vehicles for exploration and education you could build your own. I began by asking him what technology the Open ROV was based on. We are based on a BeagleBone um, setup and Arduino and a lot of parts that come off the shelf from our RC planes and um, electronics as in general. So we take parts and assemble them, especially with some acrylics that we use laser cutters for to cut in, in, uh, in place. We assemble all of that. We have open source software, we have open source hardware, so all our plans are made available on the internet. And with that we build the, the underwater robots or re remote operated vehicle for um, a kit that goes for about 850 US dollars compared to something that is a lot more expensive in the commercial space, which like 10,000 at least. And we want to build a platform and have already built a platform for scientists, for citizen scientists to go and explore, go and educate people about what is underwater. And then the other side is as well, letting kids develop their own underwater robot, build it, 
they have in introduction to um, engineering and electronics, computing, underwater, marine science, and all of that to make people aware of what is under the sea. And BeagleBone is a standalone computer system like the Raspberry Pi? Yeah, BeagleBone is, is basically same same as a Raspberry Pi. It's an ARM-based CPU as well. It has a little bit different specs, but essentially the same full, fully enclosed single-board computer. What sort of things are you seeing with the underwater robot? Where are you putting it? We have put it prob probably in most spaces that you can put it already. We had kits in um, the uh, Sea of Cortez, we had it in the Caribbean, we had just one of our team swimming through um, the Arctic from Labrador to Greenland with Expedition Setna and she took the rough with her and uh, dropped it all over the place um, on the way. We had it in freshwater lakes in Switzerland, in the US um, and I have it, had it here in uh, Sydney. Do you have a, a place for people to put all the footage? Are you centralising any of that? One part is the OpenRoth webpage and another thing that we're just starting is OpenExplorer. It's openexplorer.com and it's not only for ROVs but it's in general for people who go and explore something. It should be a base for people that want to do expeditions and want to talk about it and put, put footage up. So OpenExplorer would be the right place. Right. Yeah. And so if people want to find out about your robot kit, where, is Open Explorer where they look? To look for the, the kit itself, openrov.com would be the right one. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. That was Dominic from the Open ROV project with his underwater drones. You can find them online at openrov.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and other messages to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and apparently on astronomy.fm. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for more information about this week's show you can now hear diffusion on stitcher radio on demand and on the go download the free app from stitcher.net and please review diffusion you support diffusion by downloading a free book from audible audible will sponsor diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free audiobook of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to contribute directly to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion on fundscience.org.au. Please send an email to science at diffusionradio.com about the rewards you think I should offer. 
Should there be Diffusion t-shirt stickers and badges, for example? I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, Warm Fronts, Cold Fronts by Tom Glazer and Dottie Evans. A front is the boundary between two masses of different kinds of air. Such air masses extend over distances of thousands of miles and determine the weather in a region for several days. The weather changes, I've been told. Hi-ho, the weather, oh. The weather changes, I've been told. It changes day by day. The weather changes, I've been told, are caused by fronts both warm and cold. They cause the weather changes from day to day. The warm fronts, the cold fronts, a pushing and a wandering. They cause the weather changes from day to day. A warm front will occur, they say. Hi ho, the weather oh. When warm air pushes cold away, it changes day by day. When warm air pushes cold away, a warm front's here, but not to stay. Because the weather changes from day to day. The warm fronts, the cold fronts, a pushing and a wandering. They cause the weather changes from day to day. Barometer shows pressures down. Hi ho, the weather oh. A warm air mass has come to town. It changes day by day. A warm air mass has come to town, and rainy weather hangs around until the weather changes some other day. The warm fronts, the cold fronts, a pushing and a wandering. They cause the weather changes from day to day. When cold air rides beneath the warm, hi-ho, the weather oh. The warm air cools and clouds will form. It changes day by day. The warm air cools and clouds will form, and that can cause some thunderstorms. That's how the weather changes from day to day. The warm fronts, the cold fronts, a pushing and a wandering. They cause the weather changes.